Father uh, that only you can be. I pray that this psalm uh, and all its uh, scariness and confusion would uh, just uh, usher us deeper into an experience of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here, and uh, it's really good to be with you. Needed to be with you this morning. Um, before we launch into our sermon uh, series and uh, in, in the Psalms, which I'm super excited about, uh, I just wanted to uh, take a, a hot second to acknowledge just some of the ways I feel like I'm already seeing God's uh, redemption uh, in my own life and in our church, uh, even uh, after a really hard meeting last week. Because uh, just one of the immovable facts about our great God is that he's so good that he takes bad things, awful things, and makes them beautiful. He redeems them, makes us more fully human through them, more beautiful people, more like Jesus, and uh, individually and then also as a church. I think uh, it's safe to say that we are in a season of suffering as a church family, and uh, I'm, I'm confident that as we lock arms uh, underneath our King Jesus, that he will make us uh, a more beautiful church. Uh, just to testify about uh, my own life, uh, as, as the pastor, I kind of view myself as, you know, the, the lead beggar, if you will, the beggar who just tells other beggars where bread is. And this week has been uh, one of these really sweet, bittersweet seasons where I feel simultaneously comforted and held by my Heavenly Father and also convicted and very aware of all the things that I need to learn and grow in. Uh, on my journey to be be more like Jesus, and I'm thankful for those seasons because I think that's 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 a it's a holistic way of being God's child. Like a a well loved child is both disciplined and comforted. He's he's challenged to grow and also affirmed in in who he is. And uh, Zach mentioned it in what he shared. Uh, you know, as as leaders, we are seeking to obey Scripture. We're seeking to obey our Constitution that had been set before us from people in this church in the past, uh, and, you know, there are a lot of just judgment calls that we had to make as we did that, and so we just want to acknowledge that, you know, as we do do this process, continue to do this process, that uh, we by no means are making claims that we're doing it perfectly, and uh, again, Zach intimated this in, his, in what he shared, but I, I feel it strongly. I feel uh, that as we uh, sought to be faithful to Scripture, I feel like I could have led us uh, just much more clearly and, and uh, resoundingly into uh, just the spiritual practices that would prepare us for such an awful meeting and uh, just really covering this whole process in prayer more uh, and, and fasting, as, as Zach said. And uh, So I just want to, again, apologize uh, for that, uh, c- confess that I am uh, very much a work in progress, a, a young pastor seeking to be faithful, and, and God in his mercy uh, is showing me places where I can grow, and also I just want to say that I see you as my church family showing me grace as, as we try to follow Jesus together. And uh, on a, uh, a similar note, positive note, uh, I do see a lot of redemption in this. As Zach shared, the majority did vote uh, in line with what we believe Scripture is calling us to do. And I'm pretty confident that would have not happened for most of the life of this church, the 147 years that it's been around uh, the, the vote was a very sad and hard one that no one wanted to have to do, um, but uh, the majority of the membership here was willing to do the, take that hard step, and I'm just so thankful for that, for those of you who were 
able to, to, to do that. Um, so few churches in our world are willing to address unrepentant sin, especially when it's in these kind of like socially acceptable ways of just kind of squabbling. Maybe if there's like egregious sexual morality, you know, it'll quietly push that away. But if it's just kind of socially acceptable squabbling, um, sometimes it'll tolerate that. And I think that the American church bears those scars. So I'm so encouraged that and uh, in, in, in all this difficulty that, that you guys were willing to follow uh, follow God's uh, God's word there and um, as I've listened to some of you and been able to debrief with some of you and ask kind of what some of your takeaways were it also seems that God's re- redeeming this situation by just making uh, the beauty of repentance the beauty of trusting in Jesus alone so clear you know we read uh, we read in the Sermon on the Mount this summer where Jesus says that really scary passage where people come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I do all this stuff for you? Didn't I do all these things in your name? And he sa- what does he say? He says, I never knew you. And to be honest, this shows how young and naive I am. I thought he was kind of like exaggerating, you know? He was kind of like exaggerating, making it like really obvious what like subtle heart things can happen to us. Uh, and, and kind of what we saw in the meeting is that what he described in the Sermon on the Mount is a very real thing that people will share with you shamelessly that they're trusting in what they do. And, and what's encouraging to me in hearing your responses is that that was really sobering. That that was, that was like, uh, even for those of us that are seeking to live in grace, seeking to trust in Jesus, it was just a very sobering thing that we need to uh, develop the practice of repentance. We need to be hound dogs for any self-righteousness, anything that we would look to to make ourselves um, feel okay in in and of our own self so uh, just a couple things I wanted to address it as as the pastor as I uh, as hard as it is um, I think God will and is using it for his glory so disclaimer aside uh, but I will be honest with you uh, Monday and Tuesday in the words of the great uh, Ron Burgundy I was in the glass cage of emotion it was a it was, a, it was a very difficult couple of days processing everything that was said and, and happened. And again, God was really good to me in those days. Uh, he, was, I could, he was present with me. Uh, and then Wednesday was a great day. It was like one of those dream pastor days where I had great meetings, with encouraging meetings with people. I had encouraging study time. It's a perfect blend of study and people. Got home, was going to crank out a workout. And then Camille called and she got rear-ended and our car was totaled uh and and um you know one of those things where the car's worth way more to us than it is you know to kelly blue book kind of thing and so uh you know it's a no-fault state so thank you michigan for that and just you know it's just an interesting week uh, i feel like i kind of got back on my feet and then uh you know we are uh in this car shopping hustle praise god that they're safe praise god that uh even despite all that we can still have cozy family times in her home and, you know, not in the hospital. So it's been an emotional week, which is probably on purpose, probably not an accident, because we're about to talk about emotions for the next eight or nine weeks in our sermon series through the Psalms. I was uh, praying through a lot of emotions this week, and a, a lot of them probably aren't fit to say in public, and it was just such a mercy to then turn to sermon prep and see this Psalm, see what scripture shows us about how a man after God's own heart deals with with his emotions. Uh, God is a God who's able to listen to everything. He's able to hold all of our emotions because they all come from him. 
there aren't emotions that like sprung up on their own in creation. And God's like, oh, I didn't mean from that. He's a God who loves us in our emotions, who wants us to bring our emotions to him. And despite these theological facts, I think most any theologically minded Christian would be like, yeah, of course, you know, there's not stuff that God didn't create. Everything came from God. That's, uh, I think as Christians, sometimes we can be some of the most emotionally stunted people in, in, in our culture or our adopted grandpa, Lou Damiani says Christians can be really emotionally constipated. Um, it's like, we'll, we will think God, we think God will be mad at us or frustrated with us if we're not happy, you know, all the time, or we're mad at him even. Where it's like we read the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all these nice things. Uh, and we're like, oh, I need, I, I need to be loving and joyful in that peace all the time. So I need to go try to do that because uh, that's what God wants for me. But those aren't things that we do. Those are fruit that the spirit grows in us as we deal with our emotions. And one of the exciting things about the series is I think the Psalms show us that we can't be spiritually mature unless we're emotionally mature. The idea of separating any kind of emotional health and maturity from our growth to be like Jesus seems very short-sighted. If maturity, and let's think about our basic definitions of what it means to be spiritually mature, intimacy with our Heavenly Father and becoming like Jesus. Well, if we're not able to share everything that we're feeling with our Heavenly Father, what kind of intimacy is, is that? If you have a child and they don't share any emotion with you, I wouldn't count that as a very intimate relationship. If we want to become like Jesus, we see someone who had lots of emotions. Who's, and we see that all throughout the Gospels, that he, that he cries and he gets angry and he rejoices. Our main point today, as we look at this psalm, is that emotions require grace. As Christians, we want to press into our need for grace. This isn't something just grace right when we pray the prayer, or right when we become a Christian and we're done with grace. Grace is all day, every day, further up and further in, deeper and sweeter into grace. And so emotions, what we'll see today in this passage, uh, that if you were uh, reading along with Natalie, is really uncomfortable. Um, it shows us that, that grace is what it all hinges on. I was at a uh, bonfire with some friends a while ago. We were roasting hot dogs on the fire, and a little girl dropped her hot dog in the fire, and uh, she was about three or four at the time, and just had a total meltdown, like deep, soulful sobs and yells and wails and flopping on the ground. What did the little girl's mom do? In a just beautiful, unconditional, motherly love, she picked up her daughter and comforted her daughter, took her into the house to get another hot dog. And it, the best part of this story, this, this is true, is as I stood next to the girl's father by the fire and watched her go away with the deep, soulful sobs, he was like, man, I wish I could feel emotions like that. <laughs> <laughs> It made me like this guy a lot because it's just a super honest heart desire that I think if, if we can get to that place, 
uh, that's what we all want. The little children, they're experts at emoting in grace. She had no like qualms about how her outburst over the burnt hot dog was going to be received. Kids in healthy families feel free to just have their emotions and receive the love and understanding that comes from good parents. Which isn't to say you can't correct your children or show them how to manage their emotions or affirm the emotion but not the behavior that comes from it or whatever. I'm not saying we can throw stuff in our anger or whatever. But parents love their kids, know they're in process of growing up, and give them grace. The undeserved care and affection based on who they are, based on their identity as beloved children. And this psalm shows us that. This psalm shows us that, and I'm not saying I live here, I'm not saying that I'm by any means arrived, that, that we, can, we can live in this place of grace, that we can emote with our Father in that kind of shameless grace of, of honesty and, and, and melting down. We can presume on God's grace with our emotions. This psalm was written by King David, and he is known as the man after God's own heart, which is just such a profound thing, considering he committed murder and adultery and wrote this psalm that has some different theological issues in it. I was uh, in a counseling session with a guy, and he was just sharing how much emotions were a struggle for him, how he saw the steadiness of his wife or the steadiness of you pastor josh which i was like you need to hang out with me more um or or like king david and then he's like wait a minute king david wasn't that steady but he was a man after god's own heart but he had a lot of emotions and you see like it just didn't compute and what we see is a man after god's own heart isn't that you're steady and you never waver from this like you know even keel total stoicism uh but that you run to your father with them the, the man after God's own heart takes his emotions and just runs to his father. I told this guy, yes, that's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. You read these psalms and you're like, this guy knew God. This is a, a, a tough psalm where he's struggling, but we see other psalms where David's like, I meditate on you and the watches of the night on my bed, or at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a guy who knew God, whether it was good and enjoying, or whether he was uh, in a glass cage of emotion. I would say, I didn't actually make a list, but I would put this psalm in probably the top five most difficult, confusing, uncomfortable psalms out of the, out of the Psalter, out of the 150 psalms that we have. Uh, it feels messy, it feels incomplete, but again, I believe it shows us the extravagant grace of the, of the Father. I'm going to read the whole thing again, uh, just because as we, go through this, uh, as we go through this series in the Psalms, I kind of want to corporately cultivate a just like meditative reading where we just kind of soak in a psalm on Sunday morning. Uh, so I'm going to read it again, and then we'll start piecing through it. So Psalm 39, this is on page 878 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. 
Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my breath, you made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, O Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Look away from me, that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. The first thing that we see as we're walking through this is that this psalm, one of the reasons why it's in the top five most difficult is because it doesn't follow the patterns that you see most of the psalms doing. You see different patterns where there's uh, an embrace of emotion and honesty with emotion and then uh, they kind of bring the emotion under the truth of, of what we know to be true about God and end in worship. And you don't see that here. And so it's one that we, we like to, to skip over. But I think as we see, we can ask the question, why did God, as we walk through it, we'll ask the question, why did God include this in our Bible? Why is this the inspired word of God? The first part uh, that we see here, verses 1 through 3, it shows David's effort, if you will. And I put effort in there just because it felt weird to print constipation in a church bulletin. But in, and really what we see David doing is being emotionally constipated. He's, he's determined, verse 1, I will watch my ways and I will keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. He's like determined that he's, he's not going to cause any problems. He's going to keep it inside. I'm not going to say anything. He's kind of repressing, holding it in. He's trying to do his duty to not sin. His focus here is like, yeah, I'm, I'm in a glass cage of emotion, but my focus is not sinning. And then you see when he says, as long as the wicked are in my presence, you see this like kind of performative idea. Where it's like, he, I'm going to keep a face on because the wicked are here and I need to show that all Christians are happy all the time and that God's the best and we're never sad, so you should become a Christian. There's that, that kind of performative, like, let's not let it show. But then you see the constipation part. But when I was silent, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot. As I meditated, the fire burned, and then he couldn't hold it in. His bones were on fire. Have you ever in your life, in your emotional life, felt the emotions in such a way that it felt like you, like you were in physical pain? There was just like such a, a emotional turmoil where you, you felt it bodily, like, you're, like you just couldn't be comfortable in your skin? I was telling someone, you know, after the meeting on Sunday, I felt like I simultaneously want to crumple and disappear and also lift weights and flip tables. And it's just like, they're just like, I'm, I'm exhausted. And also, ah, it's just that you just feel it, feel it bodily. It's a real thing that the, that the Bible is familiar with. It's not outside the, the realm of human experience that God uh, affirms and is aware of and loves us even in the middle 
of. And also we see that the heart will find a way out. Some of us are much better at uh, deciding to watch my way, watch our ways and keep our tongue silent. Some of us are very excellent repressors and we can repress stuff for days, months, even years. But at some point, in some way, the heart will find a way out. It's what we see in this passage. If we try to just by our sheer, or sheer will to white knuckle any negative emotion, we might be able to make it work for a long time. But eventually the heart will find a way out. So it's best to deal with it in real time. It's best to bring it to our Father in real time. So that's David's effort. His first approach to dealing with his emotion <clears throat> is, to, is to try to white-knuckle it, or try to cram it down. But he can't do that, so he has this outburst. Look at verses 4 through 11. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. So the first thing that comes out is despair. He's like, I'm in such pain. Can you just tell me when it'll be over? Just wake me up when it's over. I just want to stop. Show me how limited my days are. Let me know how fleeting my life is because this is unbearable and I want it to stop. In verse 6, his despair expands from his own experience to mankind. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro, bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. Everything is vain. Everything is empty. Nothing matters. You go about and you work and everything is pointless and empty and nothing sounds good. One of the things I would love to see happen, which is not going to happen in our society, is to replace the word depression with despair. Depression is ambiguous and unclear. Despair is a biblical emotion, a biblically validated emotion that we, that we see uh, in, in, in scripture. And I'm not saying there aren't like biochemical things that go on and medicine, you know, can be helpful and all, that's not what we're talking about. I'm just saying most of the time when I talk to people and they say I'm depressed, what they're saying is I, I'm in despair. I feel like I have no hope. Nothing sounds good. Everything is pointless. Do you want to just go treat yourself and have a big meal? No, what's the point if food has no taste? Do you want to go get something done and accomplish something? No, what's the point? It'll all fall apart in the end. What we see here is that despair is a valid emotion and that despair is something that we can share with our Father. God is not going to Jesus, Jukas, and smack us across the face when we're like, everything seems pointless to me right now. As far as I can tell, verse 8 is this really feeble, kind of trembling stab at hope. David says, or starting verse 7, but now, look, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. He tries to turn his hope, which is a great move, which is what we do in those moments of despair. We, even if we don't feel it, we can tell ourselves, what is my hope? What is my immovable treasure? Jesus. But 
But then verse nine, you just see like the, 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 the climb is a very little small hill of trying to get hope and then it just falls back in. I was silent and would not open my mouth for you are the one who have done this. Remove your scourge from me. I'm overcome by the blow of your hand. You have done this. He tries, I'm like, you are my hope. You're who I look to. But you're also the scourge. You're also the one that is holding all of this and allowing this to happen. Now, there's a couple things here. We're not drawing holistic theological truths. We can do that from all of Scripture. We're not trying to do that from this one psalm. This is partially true. We see this in the book of Job. That God is in control of everything. He doesn't do bad stuff. But we see him as a God of redemption. He does allow the evil one, Satan, to do bad stuff. That's partially true. But really, what I see the heart of uh, in David is an angry kid yelling at his parents. It's your fault. He doesn't make the soccer team or drops his ice cream cone or, you know, whatever. It's that irrational anger at, at, the, at the parents, at the ones who are in control. And there might even be, like, partially true that the parent, it is the parents' fault or, or something like that. We see the freedom of David's heart. He's presuming on God's grace to kind of stab his finger at God and say, You're doing it. It's your fault. It's your scourge. Leave me alone. Verse 11 is another childlike strategy. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. Did you ever like, yell at your parents about how strict they were? Or any kind of authority? Just, their rules seem absurd? You see them as just this disciplinarian that's out of control? My hope here as we walk through David's outburst is that we just see the, the scope of emotion and we see the weakness of his emotion or of his will, you know, to try to keep it inside, the weakness of his will to, to try to reach towards hope, the freedom that he has to be super honest with God. When Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to a child, to, to one like these, we see that in the man after God's own heart as he interacts with his heavenly father uh, in impetuance. And here's the big end. Hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. For I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Look away from me, that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. This ends without any bow tied around it. There's no theological save here. There's no pretense about, well, I'm the king, so I need to make sure I end this appropriately as a leader. David ends with, can you just leave me alone? so I can die and cease to exist. <coughs> Have you ever felt like you just want to cease to exist? Like existence is like a labor and a burden that you're like, how did I get stuck with this? That's how David ends this song. And theologically, he ends it wrong. The typical patterns that we see, acknowledge God, express emotions, 
end in truth and praise is nowhere to be found here. So what does this show us? Why would God leave this psalm in here? And if you're uh, looking at the Pew Bible, most Bibles will say, for the director of music. David wrote this and sent it off to the worship leader at the local temple. This is not like, this is a secret journal that they found after David died and they're like publishing posthumously. David's like, we're going <laughs> to sing this together. In all our kind of chronological snobbery about, you know, our emotional health now or how important it is now compared to past generations or whatever, we're pretty sensitive when it comes to these negative emotions. We like to brush over them. But again, why does this, why is, does this exist? Why does God include this in his inerrant word? This psalm, I believe, is an invitation, is God saying, you don't have to do it right. You don't have to emote right. You don't have to like take a step back from what you're feeling, come to me with a carefully outlined prayer and expression of your emotions. God's grace is sufficient for your emotional vortex. This is David losing his hot dog in the fire. And God is is saying to us, showing us this. He's not telling, he's showing. So much of the Psalms are showing. God's saying, you can come to me with your pre-reflective outbursts. This isn't the way you're supposed to feel, but I want you to speak and feel in my presence as you are. I know what it's like to be desperate. When we bottle up our emotions or we just take them to our spouse or our friend that will listen to us rant instead of God, we're, we're bringing that gap relationally with our Heavenly Father. Like, I need to go get this figured out before I can come to you. Or you're putting someone in the role that only God can fill. And that's not going to go well for that, that relationship. God is saying in Psalm 39, it's safe to come to me. I'm a God of grace. I understand you are safe here. We know this is okay. One, it's in the Bible. And two, we see this in the life of Christ as he was on the earth. He prays to his father, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. Did he know what his mission was? Did he know what, what was going to happen? Yes. He didn't want to do it. He did not want to go to the cross. He asked God if there's any other way. And then on the cross... He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is such a loaded line because it's, it's got on the front end, my God, it's this intimate cry and it's this cry of abandonment on the end. This psalm points us to the cross. And David prays, look away from me. I'm overcome. Look away so that I can rejoice again. We know that on the cross, God the Father looked away from Jesus because he was bearing all of our sin. So now God never looks away from us because we're covered in Jesus' perfect righteousness. Even when we pray honestly and ask him to, he never looks away from us. He never forsakes us. David prays, save me from all my transgression. Do not make me the scorn of fools. And we see on the cross, 
that God did save us from all our transgression. This prayer was answered unbelievably more than David could have imagined. And he laid on Jesus the scourge of his hand. Jesus was overcome by the blow of God's hand towards our sin so that now we can come in free grace as beloved children and be honest. Two things that I hope could be helpful as you seek to grow in emotional maturity. We see in the cross that we have, to, we have no need to feel guilt towards any of our emotions. We see in this passage that we can be about as blunt as we could possibly imagine before our God. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If, there's, if you've been in church a while, there can be an element of guilt where you feel bad. You feel guilty for what you're feeling. Like, you, I shouldn't be feeling this way. And there's a little bit of an overemphasis. I'm like, if you can just think right, then your emotions will never have any problems. But that's just clearly not how humans work. So when the emotions come, when they're emotions that you know... You shouldn't have or feel terrible. Just know there's no condemnation. You can bring those before your father. I wanted to start with this one, one of the hardest ones, because grace is the foundation for anything we do when it comes, well, in general, but specifically for emotions. As we walk through the Psalms, as we look at specific emotions in the Psalms, and we look at different patterns for, for how prayer and emotion combined in the gospel, uh, it's all held by this, this idea of grace that we can have our pre-reflective outburst. We can, we, we can just let it, let it go. I think in terms of beloved son living and orphan living a lot, uh, partially from foster care, or mostly because we've been involved in foster care. And we had, um, you guys know DeMarco, we had DeMarco this past summer, and just an unbelievably sweet kid, uh, just desperately wanted, you know, like a fatherly figure and presence in his life. Uh, but he was he was an orphan for pretty much all his life, and you could see it in how he emoted. It was like it, when his emotions raised and he got to a certain level, just all bets were off, and he would pull away. And there's just all these images from DeMarco trying to, to wrestle his emotions alone as an orphan that are just so heartbreaking of him running away from Camille and I as we're trying to like be there with him. Him going to the backyard and punching a tree until his knuckles bled, just trying to get some catharsis for, for the pain that he was feeling emotionally. There are orphan ways of living emotionally. And their beloved child ways of living emotionally. And so my prayer is that you would just hear the invitation to, to name them, to feel them, uh, and, and see your father extend grace to you as, as you do that. A, a simple invitation would be this week um, to maybe just take a moment and sit down with a journal or just a pad of paper and just name the primary emotion you felt that day.
or the day before if you're doing it in the morning. Just name an emotion. It's way harder than it sounds to, to actually name an emotion. As we go through this series, we'll ha hand out some different resources or make resources available for uh, identifying emotions and journaling through the Psalms and, and stuff like that. But the, this week, I challenge you to just a, a couple of times, three, four, five times this week, uh, sit down and write down emotion that you're feeling and, and, and ask God to be with you in it see, and see what the Holy Spirit does through that. Let me pray.